This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard. I really loved cocktails and I love creating cocktail recipes. And I think of it as being very similar to my approach to creating a pie recipe. It's like, you know, all about balance and it's all about technique. And, you know, you're kind of trying to achieve the same goal. The difference is, is that you're doing it in front of the person you're serving it to. And so there's an, a whole sort of social element to it as well, which I think is uh, a real challenge. And a good bartender is always to me a very impressive thing. Here's a trendy food concept that people are eating and drinking up. Cake and cocktails. And it doesn't stop there. Meet Alison Cave, queen of baked goods and booze. She's the co-owner of Butter and Scotch, a hit Brooklyn eatery that's all the rage. She's a prize-winning pie designer and maker and the author of First Prize Pies and co-writer of the Butter and Scotch cookbook. Coming up. Why the artistry of her food and drink shouldn't surprise you. She's also an art historian and gallerist, creating a business model combining feminism, activism, and community building with great food and warm hospitality. And her recipe for what might be the most remarkable pie crust ever made. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves. Each of us, in our own way, is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. Allison, it's so great to have you here. I haven't seen you in a while. You look beautiful. You look happy. And uh, you have the life that everyone wants, <laughs> it well, seems. you know, social media. <laughs> you well, never know. But I'm very happy. I like my life. And you've been doing what you've been doing for a long time, and that's what we're going to talk about today. You are a baker, a bartender, a recipe developer, a teacher, a writer, a cookbook author of two books, and you are the co-founder of Butter and Scotch, which is one of the coolest food concepts and bars in Brooklyn. And you specialize in cakes and cocktails. Yep. It's just all the major food groups. Or yeah. baked goods and booze. You can really put it either way. <laughs> I mean, all of those things just really add up to really one delicious uh, you know, experience. And I'm sure everyone would really like to hear, including me, how you got started. So let's go to the kitchen of your childhood. Let's start there. Who's there? Where is it? So the kitchen of my childhood was on Long Island. I grew up, I was born in New Mexico, but we moved to New York when I was two. And I grew up out in Nassau County. And my mom was a self-taught cook. So she grew up in a house where you know, her mom's idea of cooking was like taking a can of vegetables and boiling it for an hour. <laughs> and I think she when she moved to New Mexico for college, I think she really saw that there was such a broader spectrum of flavor and ways of cooking than what she had been exposed to. And so she set out on this sort of education for herself. She took classes at the local community college, read a ton of cookbooks, watched a lot of the sort of burgeoning food TV on PBS 
business. Um, and really, we were the beneficiaries of that. My brother and I got and my and our father got to sort of taste her education, you know. And so it was it was a very it was a much more international and broad cuisine than I think most people or at least most American kids in the suburbs are exposed to. And I think it also really sort of showed us how much fun it can be to spend time in the kitchen and that it's something you're doing for yourself and for others. Are there any outstanding dishes that you really remember that your mother cooked for you? Yeah, there are a few. There's one that I remember really clearly that we ate a lot when I was when I was younger, I we would go to Little League games. I played Little League, so did my brother. <laughs> and my mom would always make this Persian flatbread. Mm. It was sort of a, a yeasted but sort of a quick rise whole wheat flatbread that I believe a good friend of hers in New Mexico had taught her the recipe for. And it was just like always the snack that she would bring to our games. And it, again, I think is like, that's you pretty know, wild. Yeah. Right? Most <laughs> of the kids were eating like apple slices with peanut butter or whatever, <laughs> you know, and, and this was our snack that we were used to having. So I think that's like a good indicator of, you Absolutely. know, and also, I mean, because she lived in New Mexico for so long, she was sort mm. of famous for her green chili and her red chili. She makes an amazing guacamole and, you know, that was something that now it's like so ubiquitous, but in the 80s, yes, it was, was not new and exciting. Yeah. But you know, you really had me at um, the flatbread made with yeast. And I'm wondering if there's not really a, a beautiful thread that connects to what you do today, because uh, you know, I've been cooking for a long time, but I've always found yeast really terrifying. Same. <laughs> Same. I'm actually So the fact terrible. that your mother kind of, you know, just jumped right onto the uh, uh, yeast experience because it's a living organism. There's so much to know about it. And um, at home, I never make bread, but my husband does because he's comfortable with it and starters and mothers and, mm -hmm. and all of that. But again, this is not a show so much about your mother, although mothers are very important, right? They really are our primary influencers in so many ways. Uh, and maybe someday I'll have her on the show. But just quickly, tell me, because she is a professional baker right. as well. And well, she has an amazing a, she's business. She's a chocolatier. Oh, yeah. that's right. Chocolate. Yeah. So she owns Expert. a shop called Ronnie Sue's Chocolates down in the Lower East Side. And honestly, I mean, that's where I started baking professionally was out of her shop. And I really think that if it hadn't been for the access to a licensed commercial kitchen that I could use sort of very flexibly, I don't know that I would have wound up going into food professionally. It was like the, her her openness to sharing her space and her knowledge with me really allowed me to step into this with much less risk and much less trepidation, I think, than I would have if I was one of the many sort of fledgling food businesses in New York looking to rent commercial kitchen space. Because it is, it's there's not enough of it, and it's very challenging to find right. here. And she was really a bit of a pioneer revolutionary, because number one, chocolates really were the purview of the French. Number one. Uh, number two, men. Mm -hmm. Number three, I believe when your mother got started, chocolates didn't even have the 
kind of cachet that they have today. I mean, there's so much connoisseurship around them. And she really was one of the first. So I can see where she opened the, the door for you in terms of curiosity and even actual business knowledge, business skills. Yeah. And also just, you know, for me to see my mother at, you know, at the time, I think she was in her mid 50s, mm. for her to sort of leave her social work job and take this big risk and open a food business in New York City, that was so inspiring to me. I mean, I think it still inspires me today as I sort of, you know, move through my career and I ask myself, what's next and what do I want to do, you know, for the next five years, the next 10 years? She really, you know, seeing her do that has made me realize that there's no one final step and that, there's no age limit to sort of reinvention and uh, ambition. Wow. I mean, this is so what this show is about, you know. So it's almost like we have a twofer where it's your mother <laughs> and you. And then also you have a brother who's who's a chef. So your mother was a social worker. Did you actually go to school to do something else, Allison? Did oh, you yeah. think you had a different career ahead of you? I had a different career before oh. I started in food. What yeah, was it? I was um, I went to uh, NYU for undergrad and right out of college, I started working at an art gallery in Chelsea. <laughs> and then I went to grad school in London. And I got an MA in contemporary art at Sotheby's. And I was fully planning to open a gallery someday. That was 100% my career path. And I was working my way up through galleries in New York City. I had just gotten my sort of big dream job as a gallery director in Chelsea. And about three months in, the market crashed. That was, mm. you know, 2007, 2008, when everything sort of started to turn. And because I was working in contemporary art and it was emerging artists and all of our clients were like hedge fund guys, everyone stopped buying art immediately. Everyone stopped paying for the art they'd already purchased. And within three months, my boss was like, I can't pay you anymore. And the gallery wound up closing the following year. And that was when I sort of had this big moment of having room to really look at my life and the career that I was building and to ask myself, am I happy with what I'm doing? Is this where I want to be? And I realized I, I wasn't and it wasn't. All I ever talked about was food. I spent all my time, all my free time going to restaurants, baking, cooking. You know, it was like all I read about, all the blogs, all the magazines I was reading, you know, all the books I was reading were cookbooks. I would like dread having to pick up Art Forum. You know, it, I just kind of really turned this corner and realized, no, this is where my passion lies. And it was an opportunity for me to shift gears. And I'm I'm sad that that was what it took <laughs> to do that. But I'm really so much happier working in food than I was working in the art world. And you're probably working twice as hard, yes. maybe even for half the rewards. Definitely. But <laughs> this story is incredibly inspiring. And I had no idea this was your background. I mean, because when we met, uh, you were doing kind of what you're doing, baking. Right. So you noticed at a certain point that people stopped buying art, but started buying more brownies and cake than ever. <laughs> and you knew that uh, an important trend was coming. So how did this idea of pastry and cocktails come about? Yeah. How did you get started? 
So I first started with my pie company. So before Butter and Scotch, there was First Prize Pies, which was what I thought was just going to be a little side business. After the gallery job I had fell through, I took a little time and I was sort of doing odd jobs and freelancing and stuff. And then I wound up getting another art job working for an artist as his studio manager. And it was a little bit of a a golden handcuff situation (laughs) where – I was being paid really well. Uh, I had a huge office. I love the people I worked with. And my job was so easy and I was really bored. And so (laughs) I was sort of taking all of this extra mental time that I had. And I started thinking about, you know, how could I start at least like – dabbling in food and giving myself a little bit of my passion on the side. And I wound up entering a pie contest and I won. Okay. okay. I have to hold it right there. First of all, did you always love pie? I love pie. Yes. I do not I don't think I've ever made a good pie. Did you love pie? Yeah, or so it was pie just was always my thing. Yeah. yeah, that's sort of why I entered the contest. So for my, basically from my tween and early teen years up through my 20s, pie was like my passion. It was like the thing I loved doing. And so I baked all the pies every Thanksgiving for our family. And even then when I was sort of out of college and working in galleries, I would take a day every weekend and bake a pie every week and give it away. And give me some examples of the kind of pies you'd love to make. So, I mean, I the pies I love to make are very different than the ones I love to eat. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fa- okay, that's yeah. fascinating. So too. I just love mm-hmm. anything that requires a lot of time with dough. <laughs> Um, so fruit pies are my favorite pies to make because I love working with what's in season and sort of, you know, just picking up a fruit or an ingredient that maybe I don't get to see all the time and transforming it and sort of elevating it or highlighting its essence, you know, and I also love those because, you know, you're dealing with maybe lattice work or, or sort of decorative work with, with the pie dough. Um, but the ones I love to eat are like anything that's like a candy bar. Basically, <laughs> My palate definitely goes toward nuts and caramel and chocolate and those sort of flavors. So those are fun to make, too. But I, I they don't require generally as much time or they're not as meditative to make mm. as the fruit pies are. Mm-hmm. And what was the winning pie of that contest? So the winning pie was my bourbon ginger pecan pie, Ooh, that which that recipe is a re- the first recipe I ever developed on my own. And I came up with it um, for Thanksgiving with my family when I was maybe 15 or 16. Um, and it was, you know, the result of lots of testing of different recipes and sort of tweaking it year over year until I finally sort of landed on what it is now. And I think of that as my signature pie for sure. And what was the uh, the prize that you got? Do you remember? Oh, yeah. So it was the Brooklyn Pie Bake Off. Uh, and <laughs> I won, actually, I still have it. I won a uh, little crocheted pie symbol, like the mathematical symbol for pie. Oh, yes. And I actually collect crochet. So I really, I loved Perfect. it. <laughs> Um, I can't remember. I think we got our, I got my picture in the, in the like Greenpoint Gazette, you know, it was very local and very cute. It was not really so much for like any big prize as it was for just the experience of doing it. And that was sort of what excited me and made me realize, you know what, I just want to do this. So let me figure out a way I can do it in a, in a low stakes way. And that was sort of the segue into starting my pie company. That's perfect. And that's also the perfect segue to talking more about how 
your store, Butter and Scotch, actually got started, and to actually talk a little bit about your cookbooks, because they're both wonderful. One is called First Prize Pies, and the other one is called Butter and Scotch. Here's a cooking tip to share. It's a gift, really, from a Lebanese friend who lives in my neighborhood. She makes a wonderful salad dressing from just two ingredients, good olive oil and pomegranate molasses. It's so good and so incredibly simple to make. Take one half a cup of extra virgin olive oil and three tablespoons of pomegranate molasses. Whisk together and balance with a large pinch of sea salt. You can also add a little bit of garlic if you wish. Enjoy. Fantastic over romaine lettuce and feta cheese. From my kitchen to yours, give it a try and pass it along. Allison, I don't know if you'll remember this, but I found something that uh, I wrote for you or about you years ago. Few ideas are more engaging or mouthwatering than those of Allison Cave and First Prize Pies. Wonderfully cheery and seductively written, there are dozens of exuberant recipes for every season and something to learn on every page. Allison is a cool blend of hipster mixologist who wields a rolling pin with country girl flair. I can't wait to dig into her strawberry basil pie and dream about tomorrow. I do remember that was. I wrote that. I remember it's a blurb for your book. I don't know what happened with it. So sweet. I think they wound up putting it on Amazon. Fantastic, fantastic. But okay, so so tell us a little bit about that first book of yours and some of the most unusual or fabulous pies in there, and just what was it like for you to write write your first cookbook? Oh my gosh, it was very exciting. It was it was truly. I felt like too. I don't know. I felt it felt too early on some level, mm-hmm. just in the sense that to me, I was like, I've only been in business for, you know, a year or so. And but it was I it also reminded me like, yes, I've only been doing this professionally for a short time, but I have been pretty much baking a pie every week for <laughs> you know over a decade at that point. And so, you know, and I think so much of of pie is about practice. It's about just the ritual of doing it and and the sort of sensation of the dough and and understanding it and kind of getting used to it. And so, I mean, for me, the real impetus to write the book was it, it was really born out of the workshops that I had been teaching. Mm. Um, I've been sort of doing that pretty much since the beginning. And I have taught everywhere from more sort of traditional culinary school environments to straight up like in people's homes. You know, I've had mm. people ask me to just come and, and help them in their own kitchens. And I really love doing that because I think, you know, sometimes you go take a class in a culinary school and they have all of the counter space and every gadget and convection ovens and all the things. And then you get home and you're sort of like, how do I translate this to this tiny New York City apartment kitchen? And so it's it's nice being in people's spaces because when I was baking every week, 
when I was still working in the art world, I was living in a tiny like junior one bedroom in Park Slope. It did not have a real kitchen. It literally just had like a kitchenette wall <laughs> and I was rolling out dough on my coffee table, wow. you know? And so if I could do that every week, people can do it. And so that was really my goal with the book was to try to translate my sort of cheerleader mentality <laughs> when it comes to pie baking uh, to a broader audience and um, try to just be a reassuring and encouraging presence for people because people are so intimidated by pie dough. Absolutely, including me. So um, what are some of the secrets? Because you've mentioned the word dough many times, even more important than the filling. So is there a kind of mastery? Is it as challenging and difficult as many of us imagine it to be if we just watch someone do it? You know, there's some recipes and things that are really hard to do well if you don't have a sense of what it feels like or looks like, right? Just reading it is challenging. Completely. So what, what do you think some of the issues are and how can you be um, someone's pie coach? I mean, I think <laughs> you really nailed it. I do think that pie dough specifically is something it is hard to learn if you're just observing or just reading. So mm -hmm. I do think it's something that you have to really get your hands into or ideally not your hands into too much because you don't want to warm up your butter. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that actually having the application, the experience of the making of it is what makes you better. So I think it's something, you know, I think these days we are so sort of success obsessed mm. and it can be it can be challenging to undertake an endeavor where you know you might not do it very well the first or second or third time that you do it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that like many things that are worth doing, making really great pies is something that is worth a few rounds of maybe not so perfect pies uh, before you kind of get your your rhythm for it. Well, I know you make hundreds of different kinds of pies, but um, I don't know your repertoire that well, and I'm sure everyone wants to hear the wonderful sounding pies that you make. But do you have one kind of master crust, and then the fillings are different, or do you also play around with different kinds of crusts and flours and oil-based or butter-based? Yeah, tell me a little bit about that. I have a few recipes in the book. There's one that's like a vegan uh, recipe that's a coconut oil base instead mm. of, I prefer that to like the margarines and stuff, but you can also use a margarine um, or, you know, a, a vegan butter. And, you know, there are a few other alternatives, but I do have sort of a core all butter pie dough that I return to. And when I'm just baking a pie at home, which I still do, <laughs> um, when I'm just baking a pie at home for friends or for a dinner party or something, this is the the crust that I almost invariably go to. Um, there, are, I sometimes will tweak it a little bit depending mm -hmm. on what the filling is. Maybe I'll add like swap out a little bit of flour for some cornmeal, mm. or maybe I'll substitute in a little bit of whole wheat if I think that that would go nicely with whatever filling I'm doing. But for the most part, it's it's like a very sort of tried and true, uh, very simple crust. Um, and I mean, I can literally rattle off the recipe Actually, right you know now. what? That would be fantastic <laughs> because I was actually going to ask you how many ingredients. We're really just talking about a few, but yeah, please let's I mean, share, so share your simple. secret. So I start with 12 ounces by weight of flour. And that is the one thing I will say mm. I think is really important. If you can weigh your flour, you're going to wind up with more consistent results because of all the ingredients you're working with, it's the one that can vary so dramatically by volume, depending on 
on how you're measuring that volume. So I just have a really, it's not even digital. I have like a simple, tiny little <laughs> uh, kitchen scale that I use to weigh out my flour at home. So it's 12 ounces of flour. And are it's, we talking just white? All-purpose unbleached flour, yeah. And then uh, two tablespoons of white sugar, Mm -hmm. one tablespoon of kosher salt. I use the diamond crystal. A tablespoon of salt. Oh, I think this is there's a secret here. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And the sugar. It's more salt and sugar than you will find in pretty much any high dough recipe. And then uh, it's a half pound of butter, so two sticks or of sweet butter. butter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sweet unsalted butter. And then I take a half a cup of whole milk, and to that I add about a tablespoon of apple cider vinegar. And that's it. Wow. And it's sort of like an ad hoc buttermilk. It's sort of like a DIY version oh, of right. buttermilk. Mm-hmm. Because I just the acidity with the whole milk. Yeah, right. it kind of curdles the milk and it thickens it. And I found that I had been using buttermilk at one point and then I ran out and I couldn't find more. <laughs> and I needed to make a bunch of pie dough. And I was like, oh gosh. And of course I just like Googled DIY buttermilk. And I found that like, if you just add some vinegar to milk, it kind of quasi, you know, approximates that. And it works just as well. And I feel like for home bakers, you always have milk and you always have vinegar, but you buy that quart of buttermilk and then you're forced to like make pancakes or waffles or biscuits, which is not the worst thing, but you don't necessarily have the time to make all of these other things just to use up that quart of buttermilk. So it's kind of a nice way to not have to buy an ingredient that you're not really going to use for anything else. This sounds like a real signature uh, dough. I have never, you know, heard this before. In fact, it sounds like a lot of liquid to the 12 ounces of flour, but obviously you have you have mastered it. And this is for a regular 10 or 12 inch? This is This will make you two, two uh, rounds for a, a like 10 inch pie tin. So you have enough for a bottom and a top, or if you're doing more of a custard pie, you have enough for two. And it, you know, freezes very well, lasts for up, up to a couple of months in the freezer, up to a week in the ah, fridge. Great. But, you know, the key to it really is keeping everything cold and working very quickly. And it does sound like a lot of liquid, but it actually winds up the thing that my pie uh, workshop students are always so, I don't know, like blown away by (laughs) is how unfinished it looks when you make it. I mean, Mm. it it seems very dry and shaggy and it really only (laughs) comes together in the fridge. It's very important to like bind it very tightly and then let it rest in the fridge for at least an hour. I usually say, you know, at least two hours if you can. And in that time, the all of the liquid from the milk and the butter Mm -hmm. sort of reaches all those drier bits and it hydrates a little more uniformly. But I think of, you know, the one thing I'll always say to students is when you look at the pie dough and you sort of, you know, form it into a disc or start rolling it out, you want to almost think of it the way you think of a really good steak. Like it should Mm. look marbled. You should be seeing bits of butter in the dough. And I think we're all very exposed to bread baking and to pasta making. Mm -hmm. And it's all about kneading and really working and developing elasticity and developing gluten. And that's the exact opposite of what you want to do with pie. And so I think it's really kind of getting people out of that bread and pasta mindset and into this mindset of like, okay, it just needs to just come together and it should not be homogenous. It should be a very rough, loose mixture. And I think once people sort of get comfortable with that, that that's the key. That's really the first step. That's fascinating. So I'm really going to think if 
I make a pie, and I'm going to right away because <laughs> you're getting me very excited. The uh, two dry and shaggy. We want our crust dry and shaggy. Uh, before we talk about your amazing bar, butter and scotch, uh, do you have a story about a rolling pin? About a rolling pin? I mean, I have, I have some really cool rolling pins, actually. I have... One that's like a, you know, it's funny, the ones that I I sort of love the most to look at are the least functional of all (laughs) the rolling pins. So I have like this really cute vintage like pink and mint green and chrome like roller style rolling pin that uh, an ex gave to me a while ago. I have a beautiful wooden enormous rolling pin that was given to me by um, Zach Palaccio, who's the chef up at Fish and Game in Hudson, which when I tried to use that it wound up transferring whatever stain had been put on the wood onto the <laughs> pie dough I was rolling out. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm not going to actually use this one, but it's beautiful. It has like pride of place in my kitchen. But the rolling pin that I use mm-hmm. and that I suggest that my students use is just a classic French taper pin. So it's not the kind that has the sort of spinning wheel roller. Right. It is almost just like a rod of wood that is thicker in the middle and tapered at the ends. Wonderful. And I think you get the most control with that. And it's just like you kind of achieve the best result with that. So a, a long tapered wooden yes. um, rolling pin is the best. Yes. I think I have something like that. And I believe it was from my great grandmother from Hungary. Oh, wow. And maybe she used it for her strudel. I'm not sure. Allison is an activist, a feminist, a community organizer. Uh, her restaurant, Butter and Scotch, donates money to Planned Parenthood. And it'll be exciting to hear all about that when we come back. And the gate to the garden is reached by a road. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at rosangold.com. Allison, so many people have a fantasy about opening a restaurant, and you have butter and scotch. It is one of the coolest food concepts I've ever heard of. In fact, I don't know if another one exists uh, about pairing the idea of pastries and desserts and cakes with cocktails. So tell me about that. So Butter and Scotch is based in Brooklyn. We're over in Crown Heights neighborhood, and we've been open about four and a half years now. And yeah, the concept uh, was something that my business partner, Kevy Landreth, and I teamed up to create together. Um, we conceived the idea together. We were both sort of doing similar businesses. I had my pie business. She had a cupcake company. We were both doing a lot of markets, a little bit of wholesale, a little bit of catering. But I think we both had sort of hit that wall at the same time of sort of growing as far as we could that way and being ready for a brick and mortar. And neither of us wanted to do it alone. Uh, and neither of us wanted just like, I didn't just want a pie shop and she didn't just want a cupcake shop. We wanted to sort of expand and challenge ourselves a little bit more. So we got together uh, over like two pitchers of sangria, <laughs> <laughs> trying to kind of brainstorm ideas. I think we both knew that neither of us wanted to open a full service restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, we also did not want to just have a traditional bakery. And so as we were 
sort of brainstorming. I mean, the fact that we were drinking while we were doing so kind of helped, <laughs> I think, help us land at this idea. But also, I had been moonlighting as a bartender for about a decade at that point. And what had started for me is just like a way to make extra money while I was getting my little fledgling pie business off the ground became something that I was really passionate about. And so I, you know, unexpectedly discovered that I really loved cocktails and I love creating cocktail recipes. And I think of it as being very similar to my approach to creating a pie recipe. It's like, you know, all about balance and it's all about technique. And, you know, you're kind of trying to achieve the same goal. The difference is, is that you're doing it in front of the person you're serving it to. <laughs> and so there's an, a whole sort of social element to it as well, which I think is uh, a real challenge. And a good bartender is always, to me, a very impressive thing. And so, yeah, this idea just sort of came up in this brainstorming session. And you're right. Uh, at the time, there wasn't really anywhere else that was doing it the way that we wanted to do it. There are a couple of places that that do it or had been where it was more either focused on wine and beer or a single type of dessert. Like there had been a place that was doing cupcakes that paired with wine or beer, or they were very sort of fancy and focused on plated desserts and and very specific pairings. Mm -hmm. Like I think of Room for Dessert, which was, you know, Will Goldfarb's place oh, that's that right. was, you know, open a while ago. And I mean, I went there and it was amazing, but that is so far removed from what we wanted to do. We yeah, wanted... yours is a little more lifestyle. It so, is. So yeah. what happens? So do people come and even though you're not serving really savory food, do people come and have, you know, cakes and pies and cocktails as a meal? Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> um, dessert for dinner is definitely a thing that we have seen, that we've Great. done. Um, we do have a few, like, savory snacks as well um, that are very, like, kind of bar food. You know, we have, like, tachos, which are tater tot nachos, and we have popcorn and things <laughs> yeah. like that. But it is very focused on the sweets. And mm -hmm. so we have cookies and cakes and pies and ice cream sundaes and shakes and floats. Um, the shakes and, and the floats, you can make boozy, and we have some boozy ones on the menu. But we did really also want to emphasize that like the desserts are not all alcohol infused like mm -hmm. we wanted it to be a space where you can just come and get a piece of cake and a glass of milk if you want or you can just <laughs> come and have a beer and so it really is kind of a very casual choose your own adventure kind of experience so that people i think don't feel pressured to pair this with that or to have to have a drink if they don't want a drink or have to have something boozy if they don't want it. You know, we try to be conscious of that as well. And it's made it a really nice way for people in our community to be able to come and socialize. And it's not a thing where you just like go to a bar and maybe you're not a drinker and then you're at a bar and there's nothing for you. So we do try to always have mocktails and like alcohol free options. Which has really well. become a trend right now. It has. Yes. Yeah, it's a big thing. And I think that's great. I mean, I have a lot. I mean, I I'm a drinker, but I don't always want to drink. And it's nice to have an option that's not just a soda. So I always want a drink, but I don't always have one. Um, but I, this is something I know nothing about, honestly, the pairing of um, sweets or desserts or cakes with cocktails. So if you can just tell us a little bit about maybe some of the two or three of the favorite classic pairings that sure. people come for that you've been known for and some of your process in, in putting this together. My first... I guess concern is that I know that sugar does kind of uh, exacerbate the alcohol level. I think in a in a, in a drink. So how do you balance it all and make it all work? And you know, we found that it really 
is a lot more intuitive, I think, than people think. I think people think it's going to be much more challenging than it is. But I think if you have a balanced, like dough. yeah. <laughs> but I so think if you have a balanced simple. dessert mm-hmm. and a balanced cocktail, like it will be a balanced experience, mm. you know. And I think that part of the problem is that oftentimes desserts are not balanced enough. They're just pure sweet and they don't have enough seasoning um, or they don't have enough acidity. And we really strive to have those elements in all of our desserts or at least two of those elements happening in all of our desserts. And same with cocktails. You know, it is something that we've also struggled with is people come in and because we're, you know, serving desserts, people assume that the cocktails are all going to be really sweet. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they're not. I mean, they're balanced cocktails, you know, so we have one of our most popular drinks that's been on the menu since day one is the Honey Chili Rider. And it's a gin cocktail and it has passion fruit, Mm. a spicy honey syrup that we make with Mike's Hot Honey and some lemon. And then it's finished with these tiki bitters, which have like notes of nutmeg and clove. And it's very tropical, but it's also gin. So it has that sort of juniper bracing sort of piney backbone. And it is like, everything you want it to be. It's tart. It's a little bit sweet. It's spicy. It's refreshing. And that goes so well with a few things. It goes amazingly well with the key lime pie. Mm. Um, And it goes beautifully with our chocolate cake as well, because you've got the rich sort of caramel depth and the bitterness of the chocolate with this bright sort of tropical fragrant cocktail. It's almost like when you see, you know, chocolatiers putting orange or other sort of citrus notes in their truffles. It's that kind of combination. It works really well. You know, I think I could sit and listen to you talk about food all day. <laughs> I could I'm talk starting about to food swoon, all day. <laughs> but I love, I love the descriptors that you're using, and and uh, it's as though I can really taste now what you're what you're talking about. Tell me about the activism, feminist part of what you're doing, and and uh, that's kind of an awakening in a, in a way. Yeah, you know, it's something that I think was always there because, you know, we're a women-owned and women-run business and we have been since day one. And that was something that was just a fact of us. You know, it wasn't necessarily something that we were screaming from the rooftops. It was just the reality of our situation and something that we were proud of, but also just a fact. And then in 2016, Donald Trump was elected president. A lot of us, I mean, all of us were very unhappy with that result and very dismayed um, and felt like kind of, you know, it, it was this moment where I've always been so happy doing what I'm doing and proud of what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. But it definitely was a moment where I was like, I'm sitting here making cocktails and baking cakes and the world's on fire. Like, mm-hmm. what can I do? Mm-hmm. You know? And so we talked about it and we had already been planning Uh, One of our bartenders had suggested that we have a drink on our forthcoming cocktail menu from which a portion of the proceeds go to Planned Parenthood. And we're like, that's a great idea, but you know what? We're going to take it further. And so we decided to launch our winter cocktail menu and call it the Winter of Women Mm. and donate a dollar from every cocktail on the menu to Planned Parenthood. And the names were very cheeky and uh-huh. funny, but also very explicitly political. Good. So, I mean, I had one on there called This Pussy Grubs Back. Uh, <laughs> there was another one called uh. Not My President. Um, we had one that was Kamala 2020. You know, so we were mm. very like, in your face, this is what this is about. And 
the response was overwhelmingly enthusiastic and supportive. The people in the neighborhood were really, I think, felt like I think it was also just a way to message to our neighbors and our community. This is a space where this is how we feel. If this is how you feel, you like you are welcome here. You know, like we're not going to like make anyone feel excluded. And and we're going to use our business, which has so much more power than we do as individuals to try to sort of bring forth the causes we care about and support them financially as well. And it's it very up, powerful. It was, it was honestly, it was a little scary, but it was also just like, we almost felt like we had no choice, you know, and it was this thing that was supposed to just be for one season, but the response was so great. And we felt so good about what we were doing that it then expanded. And so now every season, every drink on the menu goes, a dollar goes to Planned Parenthood. All of the menu themes are, you know, some in some way either women centric or queer centric uh and yeah it's just be activism has become such a big part of our business model and we have a lot of also smaller grassroots like community events and fundraisers and happy hours mm. and it's been so rewarding for me personally and i think it also has been great for the culture of our employees and our team because they feel like they're part of something that they believe in also and it says to me, really, that your doors are wide open and everyone is welcome. Yeah. And that's a real social meeting place. And, you know, they used to say that alcohol was the social lubricant. <laughs> and I think just food in general has become that. And that's how we gather today, right? So that's wonderful. Now, you have a commissary or do you do all of your baking from the restaurant or how does we that We do happen? all of our baking on site right now. Mm -hmm. uh, we're actually in the process right now of looking for a space, another location to move our production to that will also be a little bit of retail, but more of just like a classic sort of walk-up bakery coffee shop so that we can expand the bar at the existing space because that is the one real um issue that we have is and it's a great problem to have but <laughs> we're tiny and we often can't accommodate all the people who want to come in and hang out and so the plan is to try to move most of the baking production out of this space so that we can wrap the bar around and, and add more seats and accommodate more people wonderful so i have a couple of questions how do people get your pies how many different uh, varieties do you have? And you said that you also do workshops. Uh, how do we find you and yeah. learn how to make pie? So um, you can get all of our pies and cakes and cookies uh, through the Butter and Scotch website, which is just butterandscotch.com. You can pick them up at the shop, but we also deliver within um, Manhattan and Brooklyn and Queens. So you can get local delivery as well. And right now, I know that we always have the s'mores pie and the key lime pie available. And then there's often like a third rotating special flavor uh, that we do for various holidays and, and, you know, seasonal moments. And then as far as the classes go, yeah, I've been doing a lot more lately. It's been really fun to sort of get back into teaching. I have one coming up on July 21st, uh, which is called Pies and Cats. Pies and, and Cats? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's going to be, I'm teaming up with my friends who own Macaron Parlor and Meow Parlor. Meow Parlor is this amazing cat cafe in the Lower East Side. And so we'll be baking a seasonal fruit pie 
at Macaron Parlor for a couple of hours. And then for the hour that the pies are in the oven, we're going to go next door to Meow Parlor <laughs> and hang out with all of their adorable cats for an hour, um, which sounds... is like my dream event. I think I have to bring my husband. He loves cats. Yeah, you, you totally <laughs> okay. should. That sounds fantastic. Now, you have a legacy recipe? that you wanted to talk about today? I mean, I think we talked about it a little bit, but Uh I I think that my bourbon ginger pecan pie is is the one for me because – it's what it's the first recipe that I ever developed on my own and Mm -hmm. I developed it. um, I think the way it developed says a lot to me about what I've learned about flavor. Mm. Um, and I learned this from my mom. Um, so she has this approach to flavor, which she uses a lot in her truffles, where it's all about sort of layering different forms of a single flavor to give you a much more nuanced experience of that flavor. So, you know, for me in my bourbon ginger pecan pie, the way that that manifests is there's three types of ginger in there. I have dried ground ginger like you would buy, you know, on a spice shelf. I have uh, fresh grated ginger. And then I also have candy ginger that's chopped up into pieces about the same size as like a chopped pecan. Um, And with that are organic pecans from Texas. Um, Because I was developing this recipe uh, in Vermont, which is where we used to spend our Thanksgivings, I swapped out the corn syrup that the original recipes right. I was seeing called for for maple syrup. So there's uh, grade B mm. maple syrup, which is a richer form of maple syrup, and then brown sugar, a good amount of salt, <laughs> a hefty shot of bourbon, uh, and some eggs. And so that's you know everything that goes into that, and the result is you know really ginger forward. You're definitely getting that flavor, but you're getting the heat of it, and then also the more sort of mild richness of it that I think is there. It goes really well with the bourbon and the sweetness of the pecans. Like all of those flavors marry really well to me. And it's something that was born out of years of testing, you know? And I think that that's that's the thing. It's like you never have to stop. You can always Mm. be trying to improve something and you never know where that next idea or tweak will come from. Indeed. And just what cocktail would you serve with that? Oh, (laughs) Um, well, I'm trying to think about our current menu. Oh, there is one on our current menu that I've recommended before that has ginger and bourbon in it, but it has grapefruit as well. And it's a really it's sort of like a Mm. it's called the Madonna Rihanna Ilana. Which is like a little Broad City reference, um, which is a show that, you know, all of the millennials who work for us and with us are very into also. And it's, yeah, it's a bourbon cocktail. It's very boozy. It has this delicious ginger liqueur that's made here in Brooklyn, uh, Barrow's Intense Ginger Liqueur. Uh, and it has a uh, grapefruit liqueur as well as fresh grapefruit, a good amount of salt. And it's just like very like bright and punchy and it picks up all of the notes that are in the pie. Fascinating. <laughs> so one more question. Yeah. What does one woman kitchen mean to you? So I was thinking about this because I knew you were going to ask me. <laughs> <laughs> and I think for me... It is like the place that I come back to. So, you know, I love collaborating and I love having this big team of people that I work with and 
sort of being surrounded and bouncing ideas off of each other. But I think that for me, what drew me to food in the first place and what I still go back to when I'm feeling stuck is the solitude of it. And so mm. I like to be alone in my kitchen with some dough in front of me. <laughs> and that's how I work things out. That's how I I kind of work through ideas or or sometimes it's how I just turn off my brain. I really do think it's meditation. It's a way of sort of focusing on a single task that forces you to be patient, that forces you to slow down and really just be present mm. with what you're doing. And to me, I think that's like where everything starts for me. That's so beautiful. Thanks. Thank you, Allison, Thank for joining so me much. today. Thank I you. loved it. Thank you. And thank you to all of you for joining me and Allison in my kitchen today. I'm Roseanne Gold. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at rosannegold.com. And if you're wondering about my beautiful theme music, it's called The Garden, written and performed by award-winning singer-songwriter Audrey Appleby. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard.